Hi listeners, I'm Izzy, my pronouns are they and them. Welcome to the Critical Conversations for Social Work podcast. This is Joella. Before we start, we'd like to acknowledge the country that we're recording this episode on today and pay our respects to the Turrbal and Yagara peoples and their elders, past, present and emerging by committing to always remembering that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. wonderful people. Welcome to the Critical Conversations for Social Work podcast. My name is Jean Carruthers. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm very excited to be here today with Jane Renica. Hi, Jane. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Jean. Yeah, I'm also very excited to be here too. Awesome. So before we start, I would like to acknowledge the First Nations people of the land where this podcast is being recorded the Turrbal and Yagara people, and pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I would like to welcome any Aboriginal people uh, and Torres Strait Islander listeners and recognise that this land was never ceded. So in this podcast episode, uh, Jane and I are going to have a conversation about the previous episode with Peter Westerby and Teddy, who were discussing critical and creative pedagogy in community development. Now, the reason Jane's going to be that person is she's done some work in community development as mm-hmm. part of your placement, Jane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and what we're going to do is unpack a few of those ideas and concepts and maybe bring some of our own understandings and experiences mm. to that as well. Sound all right? Sounds amazing. Yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> so um, let's start with you, Jane. Can you tell us um, or tell the listeners a little bit about you and your understanding of critical and creative pedagogy from your own perspective? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'll start by saying I firstly identify as she, her, um, and I'm from the Sunshine Coast originally, where Peter was actually when he was recording this podcast. Oh, I'm from the way. Sunshine Coast too. Oh, really? Yes. yes. I live up there. Oh, you're Nebor? <laughs> yes. I'm Yandina. Oh, okay. Close. Yes. yes. <laughs> Kululaban, actually. I don't know Kululaban. It's about go. four k's out. It's beautiful. Oh, nice. Yes. You yeah. would like it. Mm. So I'm from there as well. Um, yeah, and I'm in my fourth year and I did do a community development, uh, it, it had aspects of community development placement in it last mm-hmm. year, which was just fantastic. And I was actually taught by Peter in my first ever community development subject. Um, I really admire him and he, I found he taught the concepts really well and got me interested in the theories behind community development oh, and what it's all about. Um, so he actually got me really passionate about it. Um, and I've been following his career, I guess, a little bit since then yes. on Twitter and whatnot. Oh, wonderful. Um, what yeah. a nice connection. Yeah. And do you listen to his podcast? I've listened to a few of his episodes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so his mm. is Pete's podcast on community development. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I've yeah. just recently listened to the Populism Oh, I haven't one? done that one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. there's three episodes. Really good. Mm, really yeah. good. I find the way he teaches and explains things really helpful too. Yeah. And I think the person he's speaking to, like, I think her name's Sue Kenny. 
um, and uh, yeah, brilliant, mm. absolutely amazing. Some yeah. of the work that she's done internationally and here, amazing. Yeah. Yes. So, in terms of critical and creative pedagogy, um, I find Peter said in the podcast too. He said, "Now, this word pedagogy, everyone's almost got a bit of a different understanding mm-hmm. of what it is." Mm-hmm. My understanding is it's almost very similar to the critical reflexivity. So, being a critically reflective practitioner in the way that you, um, you know, you're reflecting on your own practice, your own assumptions, you're looking at the broader structures and things that are impacting your way of thinking and your way of practicing. Um, Yeah, and you're just really being reflective in the way that you practice, whether that's checking your privilege or recognising how prior assumptions or bias are impacting your thoughts, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Um, And I know there's an aspect of teaching in um, critical pedagogy, but I don't fully understand that, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. So all of that, absolutely, I totally agree with Mm. you. And I like the connection you've made with reflexivity Mm. um, because it's not about something outside of us. We're Mm. part of it as well. But looking at the ways that um, critical theory and critical understandings or critical thinking Mm -hmm. can be positioned as an educational tool. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So so you're educating people about their own experience. Well, not about their experiences, but about some of the things that might be impacting them. Helping them understand. Yeah. Yeah. And some of the injustices that that might create for them and stuff like that. Mm. Um, I've got some definitions. Mm. So um, critical pedagogy, and this is for the listeners, critical pedagogies explore how social locations such as gender, race, class and age and process processes such as societal norms, discourses and stereotypes formulate knowledge and facilitate privilege and oppression. One of the core principles and practices of critical pedagogy is to analyse and aim to equalise the relationships of power between teachers and students, Mm -hmm. communities and universities, and researchers and subjects. Mm -hmm. So that really puts it in the pocket of the things Mm -hmm. that we do, me as an educator, you as a student, and the way that we might interact. I learn just as much from you, Mm -hmm. you learn just as much as from me yeah. in relation to that. I really appreciate that. Yeah, we're able to have this dialogue even though I am a student and mm-hmm. potentially have lesser experience or less knowledge, but actually having that conversation on an equal level and, and mm. guess, both bringing something to the table and both Absolutely. learning from each other. Yeah. So important because as an educator, it would be really easy to sort of spout these concepts mm. and think that everybody really understands them in the same way as I do. Mm. But having your influence and having your understanding of the way you bring that from your perspective Mm. and the things that we need to break down and the things that I don't understand as well and being um, having the opportunity to go, well, some of these concepts, yep, I get and some of them I don't. Yeah, I I do like that equalising. Uh, equalising the relationships of power that it speaks to. Absolutely. Love it. Mm. So what I would add to that um, is the ways that Peter spoke about Paulo Freire's critical pedagogy Mm -hmm. and how his work was about how we learn and support people to understand the political, economic, social, historical and spiritual forces that shape their lives and how his 
dialogical process, like that mm. process of mm. having conversations, uh, was demonstrated using theatre and photographic imagery. So bringing that critical pedagogy, but bringing the creative ideas and understandings along with that as mm. well. Do you know much about Paulo Freire's pedagogy? I know a little bit, not as much as I'd like to, um, because I know he's written that book, The um, Something of the Oppressed, sorry, yes, the, the Pedagogy, the pedagogy of, of the Oppressed, yeah. which Peter speaks a lot about. Mm. I would love to read it because it sounds really interesting. Yep. Um, so most of what I know about Friere, I know from what Peter has taught us about. Mm. So as you said, with the codification, with those visual, whether that's a role play or a um, performance, um, how you, yeah, they use that term codification to find the generative themes that are existent in the community um, and to stimulate dialogue from there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's all about creating a stimulus and a condition for to then have further dialogue um, and, I guess, move forward from there. And I, I really like that concept um, of, yeah, presenting a visual stimulus to assist the community I guess or the people to understand more yes absolutely totally hear what you're saying codification that concept Mm. kind of baffles me a little bit (laughs) yes um I think my understanding of it is that um like the stimulus is there like the a theater piece Mm -hmm. or the photographic images that Peter was talking about um, like with the, with the work in DePaul and mm-hmm. um, Hummingbird House. But I think the way I understood codification was it was supporting, those stimulus were supporting the ways that people, their themes or generated yes. themes yeah. sort of had codes to them mm. and the ways that they saw those themes mm-hmm. and ways they uh, were coded. I, I've written down recognizing and breaking down people's assumptions Mm. and the codes in those assumptions and social ideas or the collective themes that might come out and how these ideas relate to people's lived experiences Mm. so they're not codes that we could even assume because it's not our lived experience so it Mm. would have to come from the community and I guess those theater pieces Peter talked about being able to yeah. recognise those codes as yeah. they emerged. And yeah. Peter spoke a little bit about that in his work in Hummingbird House, how he said um, he was talking about the families who were in Hummingbird House, um, the generative theme that emerged was their problem with NDIS and mm-hmm. gaining funding and all of that kind of thing. And he said, that's not my lived experience. Like, I have no idea. I've never been, I've never had to use or access NDIS. So he doesn't know anything about that. That's their lived experience. And he was able to stimulate a, a facilitate a discussion about that through the performative piece or something like that. Um, and then the, that theme came out, whereas just as he said, it's not his lived experience. He doesn't mm-hmm. know yeah. um, what that would be like. Yeah. 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 I've kind of got... A little example from my own experience but what I would like to do instead of going straight into that example I think if we talked a little bit about sort of some of Friere's pedagogy and the ways that Peter used it mm-hmm. um, or he spoke about it in relation to Nepal and Hummingbird House what were kind of the things that stood out for you Jane? 
Uh, the things that stood out to me in terms of uh, like Peter's work is in Nepal he spoke about how the community workers there um, they went in I think it was for six months or for three months they weren't allowed to, to do anything to implement any changes or they were just to sit with the people build relationships with them, attend meetings uh, cook in the kitchen and he said sit with the teens and listen to their experience and that's what I really really love about community development is just the focus on the people and the relationships and coming in with no prior assumptions um, and mm. just listening to the people and learning about their lived experience before you come in trying to be like, oh, these are all the changes that need to be made. I know what's best for this community. Um, yes. You know, I see these are all your problems. Let's fix them. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah, it's just sit with the people. And then after the three or six months, and he said he did that in Hummingbird House too when he got the job, he said three months, I'm not going to do anything, you know, and he told his, told them that, I think, before, probably in the interview, I would imagine, um, and I think that's really important and mm. something that's a little bit unique to community development. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I agree with you. Um, I think Friere's book, Pedagogy of the Pre-Oppressed, mm. yeah. is a little bit of a Bible for mm. community de- development as well. I remember when I was working... I was teaching some community development for a colleague of mine Mm. and we had a guest speaker come and they were talking about the pedagogy of the press, the book and everything. And all the students in the class were going, yeah, yeah, I've read that. And (laughs) another one said, yeah, I've read that. And I was sitting there and I was the educator and it was early in my my career Mm. as an educator and I was like, I have to read this book because everybody's <laughs> talking about it. this yeah. book, and um, and yeah, it, it was it was life changing. I think that those concepts that you were talking about in relation to listening to people's stories and really being with people, listening for those generative themes that come out, mm. was really pinnacle to the ways that pedagogy of the pressed talks about sort of creating a conscientization for people. Yes. And so have you heard that concept before, Jen? I have, yes. yes. Um, only rec- like only when I really listened to that podcast, that concept came up, conscientization. I learned how to say it. Impressive. <laughs> I like it. Um, but I prefer to just use the word consciousness raising because mm-hmm. I understand that they mean the same thing. Is that right? They're on, along the Very same similar. lines. And I was mm. thinking about it last night, actually, that... Consciousness raising, sort of for me, that's raising somebody's consciousness. Mm. And conscientization can be something that we do with people. So mm. helping people to become conscious of the bigger picture yeah. and the influences around them. Mm. But also, I think conscientization is actually something that how people are becoming conscious yes. as well. Yeah. And that's something that they're doing on their own. They're mm-hmm. becoming conscious through those conversations, mm-hmm. through that dialogue as well. Mm. Yeah. I've got a bit of a definition. So conscientization is the process of developing a critical awareness of one's social reality through reflection and action. Mm. It's saying that action is fundamental because it is the pl- process of changing reality. So Paulo Freire says that we all acquire social myths which have a dominant tendency and so learning 
is a critical process which depends upon uncovering real problems mm. and actual needs. So that really speaks to that reflexivity that you were talking about. Yeah, earlier. absolutely. And I like, I didn't realise it said about their action. It requires not just understanding but then action from there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I love the, the example Peter gave. It really helped me understand of when he was, it was working when he was working in somewhere, in, I think it was Uganda, um, somewhere in Africa, and he gave the example of, you know, someone there had said something along the lines of, oh, I'm poor because God made me poor or God yes. wants me to be poor. And, you know, he said, we understand that that's not necessarily true. We, you know, that they are poor because of the political climate of the country and of all these mm-hmm. things and where they were born and all of these things that are impacting upon that. And so his role as a community development worker there was to help them to understand the underlying factors that are influencing their poverty I guess Um, whereas in Australia I'm aware that I'm poor because I'm a student I'm poor in a different way sorry to what someone there is for but you know because of um, the I'm not eligible for welfare because this that or the other and Mm -hmm. because I'm a student and we've got these things I'm, I'm conscious of that but yeah I like that idea of helping people understand and become aware of the fact that I guess it's not their fault um yes yes because I think often people think it is or this is just how it is or God's put me here yeah yes yeah Mm. and then people try to work harder and uh, they're already working really hard Mm. um and all of those sorts of things and that that concept that you were talking about it's so interesting because of your education that you've got, you've got an awareness of your own situation. Mm. And if Peter was to go in there, and Friere talks about the banking Mm. system of education or the banking model of education, and he critiques that. And Mm. and, and so if Peter was to go in there and say, oh, no, you're not poor because of this, you're poor because of all these other things, Mm -hmm. and starts telling people what to do and starts saying, listen to me because I've got all this knowledge and I can give it to you. And so Mm. that banking system is like the idea of depositing knowledge into people. Yeah. And Freya says it, it's flawed because they become passive recipients of this knowledge yeah. and the person that's the knowledge holder is positioned as an expert, mm. you know. Yeah. And so if we go into community thinking that we're experts and we've got all this knowledge that we can give to the community members, then that could be really oppressive. Mm-hmm. And so Freya talks about the ways that what you were talking about before, people thinking they're poor because it's God's will or they're poor because they didn't try enough or they're poor because they didn't take certain opportunities or or those kinds of things. He calls that false consciousness. And Mm. that's a term that comes from Marxism, but Freire kind of, like Peter talked about it um, from Freire's perspective, and um, Freire relies on Marx's definition and Marx's mm. understanding about that. And so Freire suggests that false consciousness is a condition that individuals develop as a result of their circumstances and the one which needs to be challenged. This occurs through the process of conscientization. So he's mm. saying that providing opportunities mm-hmm. for the community to be able to realise themselves 
that there are other bigger picture factors yeah. that are make creating that poverty mm-hmm. that they're living in means that they can take action yeah. in different ways as a collective, which gives them power and they can create changes through dialogue because they mm-hmm. get to see what resources they have yeah. and the ways that they can create that social change within mm. their circumstances. Because I think knowledge is power in some ways and when you're helping people to gain mm. that knowledge and understand why they're in the position that they're in or what's going on, you're then giving them or helping them to take power of their... Sorry, not take power of their circumstances, but with conscientization, you're helping people understand, I guess, the broader structures that we spoke about. Yeah. And that then gives them... I'm struggling to articulate my words. Um, agency. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Gives them agency, yeah. so that yeah. so that they have that knowledge and they can actually, as a collective, say, okay, so what do we do about yeah, this now? That's Where right. do we start? And, yeah. And come from that collective uh, understanding. Yeah. Um, and and build on that. Yeah. Um, I was just conscious that I was coming. Almost sounded like a very neoliberal perspective, perspective for a second there. Give yes. them power to pick themselves up by the bootstraps and yeah. you know do better. <laughs> that's, so that's right. not what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> but it would be easy. Yeah. To do that's it? Right. in the mm. climate that we're in of mm-hmm. neoliberalism and we might want to fix communities mm. and we mm-hmm. think oh we've got all this knowledge as. Um, uh, from our social work and human services yeah. degrees yeah. and stuff like that, that we could go in there and make some really good changes. Mm. If we're not with the community and they can, we can't build, tr- haven't built trust. But yeah. the thing I think that's really important that Peter talked about is asking critical questions. Yes. And yeah. so as the facilitator of these processes mm-hmm. and like if, whether it's theatre processes, whether it's dialogical processes mm-hmm. or whether it's bringing imagery and things like that, the dialogue around those asking really good critical questions that brings them out of themselves mm-hmm. and actually helps them to realise, well, where does that even come from? Yeah. You know? Why is this situation the way it is? Mm. And I think that really is a skill for a social worker to really focus on developing, or human service worker, sorry. Like we have a whole subject that I'm doing at the moment dedicated to critical reflection. It's a whole Mm -hmm. subject, but basically about critical pedagogy and reflecting on your own views, but also we get an opportunity to ask other um, class members critical questions about, you know, their perspectives. And it really is a skill that I find it was really interesting to learn and, and challenging to to learn how to ask those questions, but really important. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. it takes us outside of ourselves. Like rather than going, how does that make you feel? Mm. It's like, well, where does that come from? Yeah, yeah. It takes well, us out to, so that we look outside of ourselves. And, yeah, and to those influences. Mm. Yeah, mm. that's cool. So from here, where would you like to go, Jane? Is there some other concept that you would like to look at? Uh, I was just thinking before when you were speaking about coming in, um, you spoke about not coming in with prior knowledge and assumptions, um, and I was just thinking about so many, I guess, baby fresh social workers will go out and work in an Aboriginal community as their first role. And I actually I have a friend, my housemate actually, She's a white Australian, but she lived like almost all of her childhood in an Indigenous community outside Mm -hmm. of Alice Springs. Yes. And so she has seen time and time again all these 
people with amazing intentions and great training, but still coming in with these assumptions that they know what's best for a community, you know, or or they know what needs to be done to quote unquote fix it, um, I guess, or fix the problems that might be existing there and, and just spending six months, which might be their contract or even a year and it just nothing happening or just them being um, vastly disappointed, I guess, at their lack yeah. of progress or ability to make change, I guess. And I think that's why Friere's perspective and what Peter spoke about is so important to firstly like we were just talking about before, being on the same uh, level when you come in, not coming in as a power figure and someone in a position like of authority, an expert, like yeah. an expert, yes, yeah. who knows what's best, but coming in and being on the same level and just listening. And then I guess from there you you start to engage in dialogue, you start to hear the generative themes, that you spend time with them. Yes, I think as people who are even very good intentioned well taught can still come in and just have a six-month contract and think they can change the world absolutely Um, and some of that's to do with neoliberalism as Mm -hmm. well like only having a six-month contract only having funding for a certain period that's what the government will give you um, because that ticks a box for them Mm -hmm. yes we're doing our job we're we're providing this service for this amount of time and yeah. then if there's no outcomes yeah. then they go oh well that didn't work so we'll try, try something, something that's else. even more punitive and i imagine mm. that's a huge challenge for community development workers if they're in, on a, under a government contract or something being given a task and say you've got six months and yeah. it's, that's just not achievable if i want to do this in a, a safe and good way yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely I wanted to tell you this story because I think it ties into all of those things. And so when I was working in community, I was working in a, like a hinterland community. Mm. So it was a smaller community, but it was quite a thriving community. They had a lot, lot of events going on and a lot of things happening. And one of the things that the community... And just I want to go through sort of a bit of the process so it sort of connects with that process. Mm. And so being with the people, I got to know them so that they trusted me, mm-hmm. had conversations with them, built those relationships and, and kind of came in like they talk about in community, community development, leading from behind, listening to their stories. I listened to a mm. lot of very interesting stories. Okay. <laughs> yes. But listening for the generative themes, and one of the themes that was really interesting was around the local swimming pool. Okay. And so this local swimming pool was being run by a couple of institutions, and it was coming up for renewal, and the community all these different conversations from different people were were talking about it because it was like it was being run not very well so okay. it was yeah. it wasn't being run adequately and it wasn't open very often and um and the community really wanted to utilize mm. this resource that they had and they couldn't do it um and so what happened was when we had our agm and i think the agm became the stimulus even though, and it was a dialogical process, yeah. but it wasn't a creative process as yeah. such, but it, it gave the people of the community an opportunity to voice their concerns mm. together rather than all these rumours going yes. around. Yeah. And so that became the stimulus for a bigger conversation. But what I really noticed in that was um, there was lots of very passionate people <laughs> about the pool. And so there was lots of loud voices mm-hmm. and um, and there was sort of 
talk of they're going to they're going to um, sort of concrete in the pool, and mm. other people were saying, "Oh no, they're going to close it down." And other people was, had other stories that they were telling, and they all came together. And what ended up happening from that, and it was really uncomfortable. I was facilitating this mm. um, annual general meeting, AGM, and I was really uncomfortable because. Um, I wasn't expecting so much animosity. Yes. And I felt like I was the oppositional position of me and the community. So as the community development worker, Mm. I was put in a position where I was part of the institutions Mm. that were creating that. And so what ended up happening is an outcome of that meeting was that we started having dialogues. Mm. We started having conversations. And that was really helpful because we got to know the resources Mm. and the strengths that the community had. And even things that were profound, the swimming pool had to have someone to run it Mm -hmm. that had the legal ability to do that. They had to have particular credentials, qualifications and so on. There were people in the community that had these. And so what happened was the community, through these dialogues, ended up actually taking over the swimming pool. Oh, wow. So it was a really amazing outcome and they got to determine how it was run. Mm -hmm. They got to determine how often it was open Mm -hmm. and all of those kinds of things. They still had to work with the institutions, Mm. but that collective dialogue and the, the people within it and then them being able to write letters to Mm. these institutions and having me to support that was really important. Now, what I had to be really careful of was checking my own assumptions and I had to step back because I had my own ideas of how this should work because I wanted to keep everyone happy. Yeah. So I wanted to keep the institutions happy (laughs) and I wanted to keep... So I was actually sort of smothering their voices Mm -hmm. a little bit because I wanted it to be really civil, amicable, um, everybody wins kind of stuff. Which is totally natural to want that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But it was really important that I stepped back back so that the community's voice could be heard. And it made me think about that concept that Peter was talking about that I didn't fully understand at first. The start with the people but don't stay with the people. Mm. And it made me think about that time that I was there to facilitate and ask those critical questions Mm -hmm. so that the community could explore what the actual problems were, how they could take action Mm. and what that looked like for them was really important. But once I had an investment in, in it that was not helpful, I needed to pull back. I needed to pull back. And that's where the community takes over. And they did that all themselves, you know, in the end. And they used me when they needed to, to sort of go over stuff or to advocate a particular way or to organise a meeting for Mm. something and things like that. So I became, I was still part of the process, but I didn't have to lead the process at all. And I love, I really like how that story really clearly shows the, as you said, the processes in community development that Fuya talks about. You can see them all happening throughout that story. You had this started with the stimulus of the meeting and so much dialogue occurring there when you had, I would say, maybe a bit of conflict or just mm-hmm. um, yeah. opposition um, among the people. You know, the com- we sometimes assume communities all want the same thing, but often that's not true. Yes. And then moving on from that through the dialogue, which you facilitate to 
I guess, um, I think he talked about um, narrative practice, how you go from the first story to the second story. So moving from that conflict to having those oppositional views through dialogue to understand that, oh, actually there's heaps of capacity in this community to Mm -hmm. run this ourselves, to come to that realisation. And I think that's when Peter started talking about not staying with the people. He said, you know, you, you start with them... Um, you listen to their views, you move from the first story to the second story, which is a opportunity to look at how we can approach this differently, how we can yeah. make positive changes here. Let's move from the the problems, I guess problem-focused discussions, which are important to analyse, you know, what's wrong here, what's happening, what are the issues existent, to moving on to, okay, well, what's your experience of ways that this could be solved? Um, he talked about it in a hummingbird house context yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah, I wrote it down. He called it the pain story. The pain story. the first story. story. Yeah. And one of our other colleagues called it the problem-saturated story. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the second story was the story for change or the story of change where those resources and that action can happen. And I called that the hope story. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think uh, without, I guess facilitation it often often will happen when communities just come together but sometimes I think it can be very easy to stay at that first story mm-hmm. and just to talk about this yeah. is what we're feeling this is why we're angry this is why we're hurting and yeah. not moving past that mm-hmm. which can be really difficult but that I think is where a community development worker comes in and says okay yeah. let me ask the critical questions let me um, even connect people up who potentially haven't met each other let's form a group of people and, and actually talk about this and talk about the hope story, yeah, yeah. the, the yeah. ways that we can create positive change here. Yeah. 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 And that reminds me too because Peter was saying that with that first story, that's like the false consciousness yes, as well. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And he said that one of his colleagues, Anthony Kelly, Anthony Kelly. Yeah. yeah, he says that those stories and meeting people there is really important mm. and really valuing that pain story for yeah, them, not, or that false consciousness and not yeah. trying to force people. Yes, not coming in with toxic positivity going, okay, let's look at how we can change this straight away, but yep. being like, yes, I sit with you and I hear that and I feel that and i validating their feelings, I yeah. guess, and really sitting with them in that place for a little bit before you try and push them to move forward, yep. especially in his hummingbird house context, you know, when he's dealing with families that are grieving and going through intense loss and traumatic situations to just come into that and say okay you know how are we gonna change that I think that would be harmful almost absolutely yeah Yeah. I like that term toxic positivity yeah Yeah, that's a good term (laughs) so last concept Mm. that we look at I know we didn't get a chance for you to talk more about your own no, I didn't. experience. Yeah. Did you want to talk briefly about how that relates to some of your own? Yeah, I can share a little bit about it. Because my placement was, it was a bit of a mix in that it was community development focused, but it was also a research project. Okay. So I wasn't in the community for the full five months of placement. We actually only went there four times altogether, I think. Um, But we did lots of phone interviews and Zoom and phone, things like that. And Was that because of COVID? It wasn't because of COVID. It was initially um, going to be a, a, it was like a, just a mix between research and community development online and in person. That was just how it was always going to work. 
but we even found a way to kind of make that work in that the first two weeks we weren't to ask anything related to our research question we weren't to to research anything about that we weren't to look at it we were just to call people and chat to them basically oh, and say wow. tell me about your experience in this community you know what do you value about it what do you see are the strengths these kind of things um, nice yeah we were instructed by a supervisor nothing at all related to your research topic because we each had a different topic and I think that really aligns with Freer's concepts of I think course. just sitting with the people starting with the people yeah and then when we did go and visit we would actually get to see people in person you know we got showed around the town we would go for two or three nights at a time and we were billeted um, so hosted by community yes. members which was mm. just fantastic um, and they were all so welcoming because it was a rural town and generally and we found the experience was rural people are so welcoming and so yeah they were so happy to have us there and Um, that brings up ideas around the ways that community development can be different mm. to other social work and human services settings where the boundaries need to be really really sharp or very secure because of the vulnerability of Mm -hmm. particular groups such as people in child safety and people in hospitals and things like Mm -hmm. that. So very interesting that this was an opportunity to see a different way to be a worker in that process. And it brings me to our concept of pedagogy of love. I was just about to say that. Yes. Tell me what that means to you. Oh, I just think it's quite unique to community development, like you said. It's unique to be so close to the people that you're working with because you're building really deep relationships and you're there for a long time and you get you want to be really invested in these people and Peter said you know you're not going to be doing effective community development work unless you you love these people which is I think would be any field of social work that would be labeled as unprofessional and crossing boundaries and so I find this concept actually really interesting as a community development worker how you find that line between professional and personal relationships. Um, For us as students, it was a little bit different. I don't think you would ever live with someone potentially um, as a, as a practitioner as students, it was slightly different, but even then, you know, there was boundaries that we found really difficult to, you know, even confidentiality had a few hiccups where I had to come to my supervisor and say, Oh my goodness, I've said this. I probably shouldn't have said this, but because I'm in someone's home, we're having a cup of tea after dinner, having a chat. Like, It was really difficult. And I think there's pedagogy of love in that you really invested in the people that you're working with and you do love them is very unique to community development. I think it's a great thing and a really good thing, but I think it is difficult to manage. Mm. Absolutely. And also being in it and then Mm. um, and and caring about these people and being part of the community, but also recognising that you're outside of that community. And then having to step back, like you said earlier, you don't stay with the people, you eventually have to leave them to it, I guess. Yeah. I just wanted to say thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. I think we've had an absolutely really rich discussion. Yeah, I'm really appreciative of the knowledge that you bring and the experience that you brought and wisdom. Thank you so much. All the best to everyone who's listening and bye for now. Thank you so much for having me. Really, I echo everything that you said. Yeah. Bye, everyone. Bye.
you'd like to keep up with any of our socials and to continue listening to future episodes, please follow us on Instagram. That's Critical Conversations, the number four SW.